بپردازید Last week we started a new sermon series working our way through the book of Titus and as you'll recall we mentioned that the apostle Paul had left Titus in Crete uh, where a church had been planted and he wanted Titus to see to it that the things were overseen put into order and run as a church ought to be run he left certain instructions for him which begin in our unison scripture reading today which is Titus 1 verses 5 through 9 so as we read these words as they're printed in our bulletin on the sermon notes page that you'll find toward the back of your bulletin it's printed there in the English standard version we'll read these words together remembering that they are Paul's words to Titus but at the same time they are God's word to us let us read together Titus 1 verses 5 through 9 this is why I left you in Crete so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard, or violent, or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Please pray with me now. Our Lord, we turn to you now as we look at your word given to us, and we pray that you would give us hearts ready to be shaped by your word, ears ready to hear your word, eyes ready to behold your grace and your glory. Speak to us now, I pray that whatever words I speak might not be my words, but rather your words. And if they be not, I pray they would fall to the ground. Be glorified in this time because and for the sake of Christ Jesus. Amen. Well, we'll notice that in this passage, Paul has told Titus, first off, what he needs to do is he needs to see to it that things be put into order. And he gives him some instructions for it. And it's very noteworthy, I think, that where he begins in setting things up in the church is with leadership. He says that's where we need to start with these instructions. It's where we need to begin. Leadership's important. W.J. Redden has said that the leader's true worth may sometimes be measured by the amount of time he could remain dead in his office without anyone noticing it. 
Now, I hope that we have a little bit higher standard for what we're expecting from leaders here at the church. Uh, Whether it's leadership here or anywhere else, for that matter, we should probably have a higher standard, but here at the church especially. And when we talk about leadership at the church, the means of leadership that God has ordained, that he has instructed us in through his word, is to follow him ultimately as our leader, but immediately, most directly, is to follow the elders of the church. And so he says here that this is why I left you in Crete, that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders. Now, when we look at this word elder, it it means pretty much the same thing, whether it be the Hebrew or the the Greek or the English. Uh, it, It most literally means an old man, somebody who is just old chronologically. But when Paul uses this term, he's not just speaking about a chronological age. If that were the case, there'd be no need to appoint elders. It would be just go around, look at people's driver's license, see when they were born, and we'd know who the elders were. But there's something more to it than just a chronological age that he's looking for here. He's, he's looking to find somebody who is spiritually mature, somebody who has that which would normally be expected to come along with age, but is not automatically there. And so he says, appoint elders, those who are spiritually mature to the specific office in every town as I directed you. Now he's not saying necessarily that Titus is to choose these people himself. Uh, he's, He's very possibly meaning when he says appoint, the sense of that word could be uh, along the lines of what we would say ordain. Uh, much the same as within our own polity, what we do is, is the congregation elects elders, but then the session ordains them. They become elders, even though they have been elected by the congregation, they become elders when they have been ordained by the session. So we could say that the session makes people elders, or on the other hand, we could say that the congregation makes them elders. But in reality, it is God who makes people elders. And so what Paul is telling Titus to do is to take those people who, who God has made elders, whether it be people who have been elected by the congregation or people who have been brought forward by some other means, it's not explicitly told to us here. And he is, in essence, to ordain them and install them as elders. There can be many different people involved in this process. There certainly is here at our church, as I mentioned. And and that process is already underway. I know we have a nominating committee that is already at work looking at officers to be elected next year. And they're working through that process. They've had meetings already, and they're they're putting together lists and and asking people to consider filling these offices and and so they're diligently going about that work and you as members of the congregation will will be brought into that process as well at our annual meeting as every year we gather together and we vote on these officers and whether it's the nominating committee or the people choosing to be a part of this process as officers or you as the congregation electing these individuals we all bear a responsibility that we need to do our very best to make sure that the people becoming elders in this church are the people that God would have be elders. 
And here in this passage, we see a picture of what kind of people those should be. And specifically, we see that they should be men of wisdom, men of godliness, and ultimately men of the word. I say men of wisdom, first of all, because of the terminology of elder. Like I said, it is somebody who is spiritually mature, somebody who is, who is wise. The, the generally accepted idea throughout cultures, not just our culture, but many cultures, and held forth in the Bible as well, is that wisdom often comes with age. Again, it's not an automatic thing, but there is a correlation that suggests that people become more wise with time. And the Bible affirms that this is normally the case. Now, it's not saying that those are the only wise people. If we look at Timothy, for instance, the Apostle Paul tells him in 1 Timothy 4, let no one despise you because of your youth. And he was in a position where he was overseeing churches as well. And so it's not a, a thing where it has to necessarily be an old person, but quite commonly, the wisdom that is required will come with age. And so we see this need for wisdom in elders. Uh, the phrase that we see here, elders, is, is but one phrase that's used for this office. There's another phrase used just a couple of verses later. Verse 7 speaks of overseers. It's a different word that stands behind that. Uh, in the Greek, we've got elders is presbyteros. We get our term presbyterian from that. This phrase overseers is the Greek word episkopos. The word episcopal comes from that. So you see two different denominations uh, kind of gather their name from these different Greek words that stand behind these. And sometimes you'll see in some translations of the Bible that episkopos is not translated as overseer, but rather as bishop, uh, as in the overseer of a number of churches. But as we see from what Paul says here, he equates these positions, this position of elder and this position of overseer. They, they are the same position, just different responsibilities being highlighted here. He is, as an overseer, to be, verse 7 tells us, God's steward. Paul uses the image of, of a household manager or the manager of an estate. It's the same image that he uses in other places, such as Galatians 4, where he says, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he's the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers. That's the same phrase here that is translated as a steward. Uh, the idea of this position, somebody who, who is in a position of authority over a household, who sees to all the details, all the responsibilities of that household, is one obviously of great trust. Uh, I suppose if, if we go on vacation, sometimes we might leave somebody as, as a house sitter at our house, somebody who watches our things, makes sure that nothing goes wrongly. That, that's kind of the idea, but it goes far beyond that because it's somebody who would manage the household even while you were there, somebody who would see that the daily affairs of the house were being taken care of, that would be overseeing even the children as we see there in Galatians 4. It is a position of great trust, a position of great responsibility. And so it is with the elders of the church. It is a position of great trust, a position of great responsibility. And if we are to see elders as overseeing the household of God, it is helpful for us to consider what the Bible says elsewhere about the household of God. How is, how is the household of God most commonly referred? It is most commonly referred to as 
a flock of sheep. And so it is right that we'd understand that the elders are also to be shepherds as overseers. Now, the position of shepherd is an interesting position. We sometimes just kind of don't give a whole lot of thought to it. We just know that the Bible talks about shepherds and we, we move on. But if you think about a shepherd, it's, it's a position which has kind of varying responsibilities that really seem to be kind of on opposite ends of the spectrum. As I was thinking about this week, I, I came across a quote that I thought was very helpful in drawing the image here that is what, what is needed in a shepherd, a, a need for both strength and tenderness. Uh, on February 12th, 1850, or 1959, which was the 150th anniversary of Abraham Lincoln's birth, the poet and historian Carl Sandburg was asked to come speak about Lincoln to a joint session of Congress. And the talk he gave to Congress on that occasion about Abraham Lincoln was titled Man of Steel and Velvet. It's a beautiful use of phraseology, a beautiful use of language there. He saw Lincoln as a man of steel and velvet. He began, not often in the story of mankind does a man arrive on earth who is both steel and velvet, who is as hard as rock and soft as drifting fog. You see, Sandberg saw Lincoln as a person who had shepherded the nation ably through a very troubling time. And to be such a shepherd, he needed to be both very strong as steel and very soft and tender as velvet. That's what's required of a shepherd. You see, consider what the Bible says elsewhere about a shepherd. In 1 Samuel 17, the Bible speaks about David as he prepared to battle Goliath. He came forth and King Saul, who should have been the one fighting this battle on behalf of the people of God against the enemy of the people of God. But he was too fearful and he shrank back from this task. And so comes little David the shepherd boy. He says, I will take care of this Philistine. And Saul Saul says to him, son, son, you don't know what you're getting yourself into. You can't do this. I can't let you go forth. And David says to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear who took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it from his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. Those are strong words delivered from a strong man. That is a picture of of a man of steel. You can see in this picture of, of why David was anointed to be the king of the people of God. For he was brave and he was, 
He was strong. He was willing to face difficulty on behalf of the people of God. He was willing to imperil himself trusting in God rather than being fearful and shrinking back from the task. He was a man of steel. And so it is that elders are called to be men of steel. But that's not all a shepherd is. Consider, for instance, Isaiah 40, verse 11, where it says of the Lord, he will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. What tenderness, what gentleness, It's much the same as in Psalm 23, written by shepherd King David about the Lord who is my shepherd. And there he speaks again of this comfort and this tenderness and this kindness that issues forth from the Lord precisely because he is a shepherd. So it is for the elders of the church. They are called to be men of steel and men of velvet. Strong and gentle. Bold and tender. That is the kind of leadership that is needed. That is the kind of leadership that elders are called to. Just a couple months ago as I was installed here the message that was preached at that service was from Acts 20. And you heard these words that are directed toward leaders of the church, toward elders and pastors. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God. Paul goes on and says, Fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Therefore, be alert. Be still. Be strong. Be prepared for the fierce wolves that will come. Then Paul goes on from there. He says, Remembering that for three years I did not cease, night or day, to admonish everyone with tears. You see, the the sweetness of his heart pouring forth the care and the compassion that he had for all that were following him as he prayed for them, even in tears. That is how elders should pray for the flock. Heartfelt prayers Heartfelt prayers that lead even to tears shed on your behalf. That is what is expected. And that is what is modeled by our Lord. Think of Jesus coming into Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings. The Lord is our shepherd and he shows this kindness, 
this gentleness. And as he sends forth his disciples in Matthew 10, he says to them, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Again, we see kind of this paradox that both of these things should be held in tension with each other. See, what's tricky about that is when should an elder be steel and when should the elder be velvet? Well, that requires wisdom. And so it is that elders must be men of wisdom to know when they need to encourage and when they need to confront. They must be men of wisdom. They must be also men of character. If anyone is above reproach, we read in verse 6. And again in verse 7, if an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. This phrase, above reproach. Well, does that mean uh, completely sinless? Well, of course not. For if that's what it meant, then there would be no one who would ever be an elder apart from Christ Jesus. The only one who has walked this earth without sin. What it does mean is is that it must be a person who cannot be called to account for his actions. It means it's a person who has developed the kind of reputation that, that does not invite criticism of his character, but rather he has lived such a life that, that no charge can stand against him. Uh, the kind of person who, who, if charges are brought against him, others will both from within the church and outside the church, come to his defense and say that cannot be true. Because we have seen the way this man has lived his life. We have seen the way that he conducts himself. Those charges must not be true. I refuse to believe them. Paul fills out what this would look like in some detail. In verse 6, he says he should be the husband of one wife. Now, the immediate way to understand this would be to say, well, I guess he's talking about uh, polygamy. You can't be a husband of four or five wives. I, I don't think this is exactly what he's talking about because, because it turns out from the studies I did, I was surprised to find this out, that in Crete, actually, uh, there was not uh, a rampant expression of polygamy at that time, unlike many other places. Um, I, I think what he's looking toward is not so much being a husband, although I would argue that he would maintain that he should be a husband of just one wife, not be married to multiple women. I think what he's getting at more directly is this point, that he should be essentially a one-woman man within the confines of his marriage. He should be modeling marital fidelity. It should be marked out in his life. That marriage should be a picture of the kind of faithfulness that Christ Jesus has toward us, his bride, the church. You see, it, it needs to be marked out in his life in all sorts of ways. In our life, it could be all kinds of things. Obviously, this would preclude extramarital affairs. It kind of goes without saying, I would think. But those affairs need not just be physical affairs. They could be emotional affairs as well. Oftentimes, somebody will be involved emotionally with somebody else other than their spouse. Having the type of affection and kindness and, and relational type 
mindset towards somebody that ought to be reserved for their spouse. Even if there is no physical affair, this is still an affair, uh, an affront to the type of, type of fidelity that a wife should be able to expect from her husband. Obviously, another area of infidelity that is rampant in our culture is that of pornography. It is staggering to look at statistics of how rampant it is. What Paul is saying here to us is that an elder should be the husband of one wife. He should be committed in his actions and in his thoughts to his wife, not giving to any other woman any of those things that ought to be reserved for his wife. It's interesting, isn't it, that this is the very first thing he says in this list of qualifications. He goes straight to marriage. That is the area that he talks about first before all else it is because it is a a covenant relationship that he is talking about here in marriage. It is a covenant commitment among the most important commitments that a person can make. Sometimes we'll hear in our culture, a, a politician will run for office and a scandal will come out in the midst of the election process. Oh, he had an affair with such and such at such and such time. And some people will step forward and they'll say, what does that have to do with this person's ability to govern? They can do that job. It has nothing to do with that. And I respectfully disagree because the Bible disagrees. You see, if someone is unable to maintain a faithfulness within the commitment of a covenant of marriage, then how can we expect them to be a person of high character, a person of dependability within a political office? Furthermore, much more so within the office of elder. You see, because it's not just that they have proven to be unreliable in marriage, not just that they have proven to be unable to hold to covenant commitments. But there is the fact that marriage itself, as I mentioned before, is a picture of the relationship that Christ Jesus has with his bride, the church. And so for a husband who is supposed to be imaging the love that Christ Jesus has for the church, for that husband to be unfaithful in his marriage, is to not just be unfaithful in his marriage, but it is to make untrue statements about Christ Jesus. It is in a very real sense to make blasphemous statements when a husband is unfaithful to his wife. And I hope it goes without saying that those who make blasphemous statements about God are not fit to be elders. Paul moves on there in verse 6. says his children are believers. Now, this is a little tricky as well. I think that it's speaking, first of all, we need to realize it's speaking toward those who are living within the household. Uh, it can't be talking about the, the 60-year-old man who has a 40-year-old son who's living out somewhere else, especially here in the context of Crete, because... We need to realize that, that all of these Christians here are first-generation Christians. They've all recently become, it would be completely illogical to say, well, this 60-year-old man who raised up and sent out his son, you know, needs to have a Christian as a son in order to be an elder. Well, 
that doesn't make any sense. So that's not what he's saying exactly. I, I think even with children, though, I'm not sure that they're saying that, that he needs to have a Christian testimony per se. Uh, I think what it's saying is specifically this phrase that, that is translated as believers often, it means faithful. And so that can mean full of faith, they are believers, but it could also mean that they are faithful in the sense that they are obedient to their father, that they are those who, who faithfully serve as members of this household. And I would tend to lean in that direction, actually, as I study this, as I look at this, and this is why. First of all, there's a, a parallel passage in 1 Timothy that speaks about this. And as Timothy is, is written to by Paul, he speaks specifically toward the children's behavior being a mark that needs to, to be tended to, not so much the belief. But here also in verse 6, right after he says this thing about them being either believers or being faithful, what does Paul say? He says they need to be that and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. You see, he's talking about their behavior. And what he's saying is that, that the father must have control over his household. He must be able to train up his children in such a way that they are living faithful lives. Otherwise, how can he possibly be expected to exercise this leadership and this guidance to the church? The church has the family as kind of a proving ground for elders. And so it is that that is his responsibility there. He must be above reproach, not arrogant, not self-pleasing, not, not looking to his own desires and his own wants and his own needs, but looking at the well-being of the church as a whole, the church's interests. He must not be quick-tempered or a drunkard. You see, he's talking about somebody who's not in control here. If you are quick-tempered, you lose control very quickly. Likewise, a drunkard who, who drinks too much and becomes inebriated loses control of his actions. He's saying that we must be under control and not violent. This can mean physically violent, but it can also uh, be a term that is used to refer to browbeating. I suppose we've all had that experience or at least witnessed that experience where a boss maybe has, has browbeaten somebody, you know, kind of just humiliated them, uh, just shamed them. Hopefully this type of experience has not been experienced from church leaders, but I'm sure that some of us have experienced that as well, where a church leader belittles you, makes you to feel just inferior, makes you to feel little, substandard. What Paul is saying here is there is no place for that. The elders of the church are there to build you up in Christ Jesus, not to tear you down. They should not be greedy for gain, it's interesting, the reputation that, that Cretans had, uh, 
Plutarch said of the Cretans that they are stuck to money like bees to honey. I don't think he knew that it was going to rhyme in English when he said it, but it works well. And then Polybius said that they, the Cretans, are, are so given to making gain in disgraceful and acquisitive ways that among the Cretans alone of all men, no gain is counted disgraceful. So he says that, that among the Cretans, they, they do anything. He said, they do anything for money. And among all men alone were they like that. Sadly, as we look around the world, we can see today that they are not alone like that, are they? There are all sorts of people around us who would do anything for a buck. They would sell their very selves to make a little money. An elder must not be like this. What he must be is hospitable. Now, when I say hospitable, we need to understand the biblical category of hospitality. It's not just inviting friends and neighbors over and having fun. That's entertaining. Okay? Hospitality is, is, in the Greek, literally love of strangers. The word is philozenos. You may have heard of xenophobia. It means fear of strangers. This is the opposite of that, philozenos. Love of strangers. The idea is that there were travelers who would come through town and inns were dirty, dangerous, immoral places. And you should be willing to open up your house to these strangers. Invite them in. Give them a safe, godly place to stay. And, and I hope that that is how we are as a church. Actually, that as visitors come into our doors, that they are welcomed. That, that people greet them kindly and with a smile that they are made to know that this is a place that is welcoming to them, that they, they can stay here, that they can receive our hospitality here, that they can get invited to have a donut and some coffee afterwards and sit down and experience Christian fellowship. That is how we should be as a congregation. And the elders should set the tempo for that. A lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, disciplined, and not just in reputation, but in character. This must be how he is. Finally, an elder should be a man of the word. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine, and also to rebuke those who contradict it. I came across a thing online the other day that I shared with our elders at our most recent session meeting. It was an exam that another Reformed Church in Michigan gives to all of its candidates for elders. It has a hundred questions on the Bible content section of it, ten categories with ten questions each. They require the people to pass this exam in order to become elders. If they don't pass it, they'll work with them and train them. Before they do that, they have actually a 12-week course that they work with. You see, they, they train them because they want their elders to be steeped in biblical knowledge. I sat on session once uh, and, and in a session meeting, I, I heard an elder say this. It, it, this is almost a direct quote. He said, I, I just don't really know the Bible very well. And it wasn't false humility. He really didn't. And that man should not have been an elder. 
Because if we don't know the word of God, how can we be expected to lead people in the word of God, to train people in the word of God, to build them up in the word of God if we do not know the word of God? Elders must know the word. They are not just to be the most wealthy or the most powerful or the the smartest or the best personality or the most popular. None of those things matter according to the Bible. What they need to be is those who can lead people in the word of God. They must be men of the word. You see, we should not all necessarily aspire to be elders, but what we should all aspire to be is that which elders are required to be. Because to be an elder is essentially to say, follow me as I follow Christ. Now, we all fall short. Elders fall short in the holiness that they're required to exhibit. And even when they are the way they should be, we fall short in following them. But there is one who did not fail. There is one who is wisdom personified. There is one who was perfect in character and in integrity and no charge could stand against him. One who not only knew the word of God, but was the living word of God. And this, of course, is Christ Jesus, our elder brother, our good shepherd, the able steward who will by no means lose any who the Father has entrusted to him. For he himself bore our sins, Peter tells us, in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Peter goes on in chapter 5 of his first epistle. So I exhort the elders among you as a follow, fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd and he will guide them to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Oh, for that day, oh, for that day when Christ Jesus returns, if you have not trusted in him, Do not wait. Trust in him today. Know that your sins can be forgiven, that the holiness that God requires is a holiness that he has provided in Christ Jesus. Salvation is open to you. No matter where you've been, no matter what you've done, it can be yours if only you trust in him. Do so today. Amen. Our Lord, we pray that you would indeed, like a shepherd, lead us. Lead us in the way we should go. 
but especially lead us into faith that we would trust in you at all times and in all ways for all things, for your glory alone. Amen. Please rise now and sing our closing hymn, hymn number 600.